0: Hi, this is Jack's Corner, where I discuss issues on society and culture here in america everyone hi, everyone. It's Monday, April twelfth two thousand twenty one and this has been a great week, as you know you all know, I've discussed the whole depression, and uh that's getting better. I had a wonderful weekend. It was my fiftieth birthday. I got to spend it with family, the family dogs and, uh, relatives. So it was very nice. And, um, we've had an interesting week overall. We, uh, I want to tell you guys a story, right? Uh, Veronica, she's here with us today, the Duchess, about the kitties. Hello. Yes. Um, well,
1: we had heard about, um, There was a mother cat that had had some babies and one of the neighbors saw the mother get hit by a car or was poisoned. We're not sure, but the cat, the mother cat had just delivered and she was dead. So they buried the mother and they looked all over this um, woman. Her name is uh, Genevieve Genevieve. I love that name. Uh, anyway, Genevieve, she's a real sweetheart, um, she went out looking for this for the babies because she knew that there were these babies that they were going to be dying. And like the other, she had called us um, because she had ran out of cat food and we we're adopting two of her babies, to, you know, two of the kittens that she had. And um, that's, one is Maximilian, that's my guy. And then the other one is, is Akira. Akira. And that is Jackie's dog, um, cat. Or excuse me, cat kitten. Kitten. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I've got dogs on the brain. I'm watching uh, this famous uh, Latino from Culiacan that uh, has a TV show in America, and he made it really big, Cesar Millan. Anyway, um, so I was just watching Cesar Milan being interviewed. So I still have dog on the brain. <laughs> um, so getting back to the story. Um, Genevieve had been looking for the babies, and she couldn't find them the first day, not the first night. The second day passed, she looked again. She still couldn't find them. Then it was the third day, I believe, that um, the son heard the kittens. But they were inside of these bushes, and there was a fence there, and the bushes were very, very dense. So what did he do? he set about chopping through those bushes to rescue those poor four little kittens and he got all scratched up and he's you know broke the the branches and cut them and finally got to these four little babies that were starved dehydrated and um we had told uh genevieve that if if those kittens could be found, that we would take the responsibility for them.
0: And the good thing was prior to this, we had bought her because we are taking two of her kittens and we weren't sure if the mother, which was previously a stray, if the mother was going to be a responsible mother or not with the kitties. We bought her these bottles for baby formula for kittens. And so she already had the baby formula in the bottles and she started feeding them herself first. And she was telling me that it was she was having a hard time they're not they weren't latching yet to the to the nipples on the bottles and i felt like and veronica and i we both talked about it quickly and we decided to call the animal shelter to see what we could do and we called the animal shelter and thank god um
1: they said bring them on over And we have everything that they need. So on a rescue mission with those four little babies, we went to the animal shelter. And and, this
0: was right after you gave them a little towel bath because they were still dirty.
1: Yeah, they were still, they still had the embryonic uh, fluid on them and they were sticky and um, smelly. I mean, she must have just given birth when she, she probably was thirsty or hungry and went to go get something. And, um. That was when she died. So, uh, anyway, the poor babies, um, I knew that they weren't going to thrive. I knew that there was no way that we could feed them properly. And as it turned out, the shelter did have all the provisions that were needed. They have 24-hour care people that have professional training. Yes, they do. And that they will care for the kittens 24 hours a day. As a matter of fact, as soon as
0: we got there, they put them in in an incubator. I mean, it was wonderful rescue. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. So those kitties are going to be fine, and eventually they'll be adopted. They get fostered out to nursing mothers who are trained to basically raise these baby kitties when they lose their mothers, the yes. orphaned kitties. Yes. So they're going to be in good hands. Yeah. And then in a couple weeks, in about three weeks, we will be getting our kittens from Genevieve, who has the cat that gave birth to her kittens. And I noticed that the cat, the mother, looked
1: very thin. And I knew that as a mother that, you know, you nurse your babies, all of your nutrients get sucked out of your body um, and they go straight to the child because, you know, it's that's just nature. The next generation needs more um, nutrients. And so the mother is, you know, skinny and, Nutri- nutritionally deprived, I could tell, and um, she had ran out of cat food. So she said, "Just get some cat food." So we bought, a, you know, th- the nicest um, cat food you could get in a big bag, and um, I thought better of it the next day. And I said, "Jackie,
0: she's going to need some. Wet she's going to
1: need some wet food because that's just, you know, her teeth are probably hurting. You know, she's got the calcium being sucked out of her." And she's so thin. I bet she—it's hard for her to eat that, the hard stuff. And I was right. Um, she, Jackie called up going uh, Genevieve, and Genevieve said that's a great idea. I was thinking the same thing. I just had my son go to try to find some, and um, so we we went and bought tons of it, and um, went and straight delivered it. I said Jackie, we got to do it now. You got to—you know—she didn't want to go. I said, Jackie, there's a mother cat and we're getting her babies. She is starving. Right. And so I guilt tripped her to I do didn't, it. Right.
0: I didn't want to go out on to a, the outside world Yeah, and a she mercy was like, mission. Come on, this is a mercy mission. And I said, All right.
1: Yeah. Let's do it. So we did. And um, I, I asked her afterwards, I said, Now, don't you feel better that you did that, knowing that you helped that poor mother? and ultimately is going to help those babies. And she said, yeah, yeah, it was the right thing. I feel better.
0: I almost felt guilty too. I almost felt like we should have taken her on when she was a stray because she wasn't quite Genevieve's cat. She would show up because there's a few strays that live around Genevieve's apartment complex. And there's an elementary school across the street. So these cats are out there at night, but they're, they're aware of when she or her husband show up, from work or from running errands and they show up to get fed every day. So, uh, she's, uh, yeah, she's, she's the, uh, the mama of of the cats pretty much the way I see it. She takes care of them. She feeds them, but she couldn't keep the mama that passed because she already has her own cats in the house, including the mother cat that gave birth to the kittens we're getting, which was a litter of four.
1: Anyway, so the good news is is that um, the mother cat is now eating good food, soft food, and she's eating it up. Thank goodness, because she was way too thin. And I just felt like that's just too thin. She just gave birth. You're, you should be a little chunky. You know, you shouldn't be that skinny. And uh, she certainly wasn't chunky. She was lean, lean, and that didn't look right at all. So, yeah, it was the right thing to do, and um, I know she's feeling better.
0: Me too. So I want to ask you, you recently had a concussion.
1: Oh, my god! You fell,
0: and you hit your head. I was in my bedroom. I didn't hear you, and when you showed me the swelling the next day, and then you just started acting strange. We didn't take you to the hospital because you were coherent. Kind
1: of. Yeah, you kind were kind
0: of. of in this in this days and I'm still in a daze and this is
1: the fourth day. Yeah,
0: but you were dropping things. Oh,
1: I couldn't even walk then. Yeah, I had to I help I had you these walk. jerks, um, these uncontrollable jerks. But we
0: called her doctor and she's seeing her doctor tomorrow. Yes. Yes, but she has this bruising on her eye. It looks like somebody punched her in the eye.
1: Yeah, and in my temple. Yeah, it was a really, um, it was a very hard fall and I was sitting on the toilet and uh, I passed out on the toilet and um, I just became unconscious I wasn't high or anything like that I literally became unconscious and fell off the toilet and hit my head and now I have this concussion and this has been something that's been happening Um, Jackie said since she moved in which was three years ago and I didn't even know that I was doing it then I mean, my memory. Well, yeah,
0: I would I would get up and go to the bathroom at night, late at night sometimes, and I'd find you in there sleeping, slouched over, and I'd have to wake you up. Yeah, and I had no memory of it.
1: And They say that that's common um, sometimes with, when you have repetitive concussions, and I knew that I had hit the floor quite a few times. This one was the worst, though, and uh, it was bad. It was... Um, Everything turned white. You know, when you have that white pain, it's really drastic. And it was, boom, um, that concussion white. You know, I've been, I in my past, there was, uh, I was with this boxer, and he didn't have very good anger control, and he would beat me, and I'd have to go to the hospital. and I had to have facial reconstruction um, on my right side because he had shattered uh, half of my face, and um, yeah, that was terrible. But anyway, so I remember the white pain, and I got hit over the head with a baseball bat, and um, everything turned white, and it was so painful. You know, your teeth kind of clink together, and everything turns white. And um, so that's what happened, and I knew it was bad. This This was the first time, though, that I've had a black eye from it, you know, from uh, a head concussion, and those kinds of symptoms, they were so dramatic. But I knew that it was a different type of, when I had fallen this last time, I knew it was uh, a bad fall, because, like I say, I had that, it was very, very painful. It still hurts, I still have a headache, and there's swelling on my right temple. But I'll have a CAT scan, my doctor will probably order the CAT scan tomorrow, or Wednesday when I see him. Anyway, um, so moving on beyond that, are we done with that now?
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you're feeling better. and I'm glad thank we're going to you. see
1: your doctor. Yes, thank you. I appreciate your support. Absolutely. And helping me walk because I couldn't walk for about two days, the first two days after the concussion. So I'd have to have her, um, I'd have to hold on to her and she would literally help me walk to go to the bathroom.
0: Oh, you know, I'm here for you, Mama. Yes, thank you.
1: Yeah, that was pretty scary stuff. Thank you.
0: Okay, so moving right along, um,
1: I'm going to share some something that I wrote recently that I was just postulating, and so I wrote this um, December 31st, 2020. Um, a sin, a sin is a moral measurement. However, the weight, the gravity of a misdeed. A mistake an incorrect choice all are half of a whole positive posits negative and pain is concomitant to non-pain the absence of pain is a silent peace a thing no a place we escape to which is our natural self dwelling in a state of non-pain is carried by the young with burgeoning cavalier It's not until age attends to us Aging that non-tiring ever taking our lives time The excesses don't stop with old age those flaws remain I think Metamorphosizing into a new face like a virus mutating age is a virus Virus-born virus mutating like magic before our science. The virus expands, extending its long-armed wings like a bat, only blotting out the daylight due to its overarching wing expansion. Viruses are terrifying and grief-making. The death rates are now one Los Angelian is dying every ten minutes, and the explosion is only about to get worse as the get-togethers and traveling means more spreading. This is obscene. How Trump has tried to talk over and hide the facts of coronavirus. It's obscene. Okay, so now what I wanted to talk about, um, getting beyond that, this is the issue of what I was noticing. I was watching a crime channel, and it dawned on me that What the DA, the prosecuting attorney does is they have a pre-rehearsed use of these cliches and they use these cliches over and over. You know, I'm sure they rehearse them while they're in law school. Certainly they do at home. And the cliches are used to horrify jurors and each jury is new. So they don't know that the prosecuting attorney is repeating the same phraseology with each new criminal, they don't know that. To them, this is, oh my God, the most heinous, you know, human that ever walked the planet. And I have noticed that when I was watching the crime channels and I thought, this is, this is crazy. I mean, they are actors. And I remember when I was studying at Strasburg's um, and Strasbourg was making mention that he teaches politicians, that lawyers come and they take classes there, in acting. And that was pretty frightening to me. Um, I did not know that. Yeah, I didn't either, but Strasburg told me. And um, that was pretty shocking to me. But, you know, I can see it now because it's really who sells the best story. The best storyteller is the one that wins the day. So if you can wrap a story up well, then you're going to get that jury in your pocket. And, uh, so when you are looking for a defense attorney, you definitely want a good storyteller and a good actor because, um, a lot of times they don't know if you're guilty or not. And, you know, they probably presume that you're guilty. I don't know, but, um.
0: Well, I guess their acting has to be good enough to convince the judge. Right. And that's ultimately what they're trying to do. Right. Well, no, because if it goes to
1: jury, it uh, it's in the hands of the jurors. It's really not in the judge. The judge makes a few decisions, but when it goes to jury trial, it's a totally different animal. Right. So anyway, um, so that was just one of the things I wanted to bring up. The other thing I wanted to bring up is... Um, Hold on. We had a story for you. Just a minute. I'll grab it.
0: Okay, while she's grabbing the story, I just want to remind everybody that we have videos that we put out on YouTube. Please check us out on YouTube. Museum Americana Museum Diaries is our playlist. We we upload to that playlist every week or every two weeks. So check us out there. And we will be showing our new kittens when we when we pick them up on our YouTube channel Museum Americana. Okay, uh, the Duchess is back. Okay, so it's this
1: piece is entitled "Social Measurement," i.e., economics. I think there's a rare freedom discovered in being propertyless, not in the complete sense where all is absent, but in the lack of having anything of real value. No investments, save the few clothing items allowed in prison. To have only those items of utility clothing, soap, and little else, cancels any chance of being a target for those looking to separate you from the objects of value. It also reduces the individuals to just their character. There is no gloss of wealth to drape about oneself. There is just the singular human being of flesh and blood. Competition and ego displays of achievement via property accrued are trammeled, the middle class neuroses of keeping up with the Joneses is no more in such a theater of life one is measured in non-commodity wealth which is what exactly how else can anyone be measured if not in material gains well by their character by their integrity and humanism we have a long way to go as a society to get that level of understanding consider it that John Doe, worth twenty million dollars, who went to prison for five years, is much more likely to get a chance of appearing on a party invitees in the suburbs than John Doe, the ex-con working at Seven-Eleven as a box boy. It's more than the fact we are stereotyped; we think persons to occupations, but the former poses less risk of exploiting us, say, by burglary. So someone who we think has money is becomes less of a threat and we view those with the more money to be shrewd shrewd enough to amass a fortune somehow they're more worthy worthy as a human being there is without question a discrimination made against those that are poor or blue-collar workers whether we like it or not we are socially conditioned to form an opinion of individuals worth as a human being based on his or her ability to rise in the money world. The heart of our American views is social worth. It's rooted predominantly in economics. Our careers are challenged by the realities of their social worth. In other words, what will our society pay to a person in this occupation versus that occupation? The more money directed the profession or career The more powerful we recognize that career to be also with a certain genius we are baffled by the proficiency of the howard hughes of the world and are intrigued by the rothschilds of society ask yourself if your son came home and said dad old howard hughes wants me to be his right hand in business and i'm going to the dupont's for dinner so don't wait up you'd probably be struck with pride you couldn't say why exactly, but it just strikes you as a thing akin to achievement. However, if your daughter came home and said, Mom, I'm going to work with John Doe at 7 and then I'm going to McDonald's to eat dinner, don't wait up, you'd probably be a little less struck with pride. We don't look at our values as money motive based, but inescapably, they in part are in our society. Our country's currency slogan, In God We Trust, reflects our society's preoccupation with ennobling the whole economic milieu with a mystique worthy of examination. It can be speculated, then, that the individual with the most in God we trusts are conceived as being the more godly. Isn't it godlike to possess an economic wealth that, should you choose to, you could feed the state of Texas or house a population of Detroit? Despite our popular condescending view of the haves, when there are the have-nots, we would more readily feel safer walking down a dark alley with our month's paycheck in our bag while chatting with the haves rather than a have-not. We feel less threatened, less endangered. Any have-not is equally aware of your discomfort with them when you walk down their street. It is a thing communicated without the necessity of words, as is the identity of a have-not. Nonverbal communication, we know, accounts for estimates ranging between 60 to 90 percent of all communication between humans. What that means is when we assess a person, we are not only judging their ideas and thoughts, but their gesture, clothing, voice and selection of words used to convey their ideas or communicated message. Whether we like it or not, we often react not so much to who they may be or what they may be about, but that which we associate with their combined verbal and nonverbal images. One word can set off a string of alarms in us, especially when combined with associated visuals. The word criminal, for example, the combined visual photo of a person in a jail uniform and in handcuffs. Our reaction is fear, and that fear triggers off even more associations. Families weeping, property losses, death, danger, threat, etc. The media helps maintain these associations for us as well. These ideas are reinforced when we continue to respond to them. This, in effect, leads to the maintenance and expansion of prisons. Unfortunately, it does nothing to alter the actual commission of crimes. We have disfigured the totality of a person, placed them in a box of association. We have not responded originally to the unique individual in the photo, but isolated that person into one presupposed pattern of behavior. Racism is promulgated in the exact same fashion as is sexism and ageism. We have a situation of crimism, or as I say, crimophobia. Progress, that's fear of criminals, Progress regarding our curbing crime will never be made until we accept that the majority of criminals are actual segments of our society and are actual human beings. Once we establish that equality, we can in earnest approach their plights with remedy, which in turn remedies our own maladies produced by the criminal acts these people commit against our mutual society. We should be answering the question of why not what was done. The crime is the act. The motive, the decision, is predicated on why. Find out the why, and we can find solutions. Presently, we use prisons, and they act only as a cosmetic that conceals, not, change, not changes the individual. It produces more threats upon us. Becoming somebody, someone distinctly different than our underclass cultural climate allowed, is done how? By first, the removal of drugs, whose voice is re- whose void is replaced by education, not just rudimentary is taught in our grade schools today, but a more significant um, education, classes and behavior, drug and sex awareness, self-esteem, workshops for non-abusive relationships, training and seminars in victim relations, politics and philosophy. When is the time to introduce these studies, and when is a child ready to find usefulness in such knowledges? When does a child walk or speak or draw? From the beginning, we must infiltrate their education, gradually meeting them at each new psychological level of maturity. And for the adults now riddled with addiction and living on the earnings of welfare and crime, the time is now. We need a revolution in our society, an intelligent, progressive, precedence-making educational revolution. It is time to stop using violence against violence, for it only destroys. But education creates progress, change, and opportunity. Our deeds of easy, safe living are numbered, no matter how law-abiding and middle-class suburb-protected we are. We must respond to the massive gang and drug czar- czars, monopolies that are currently flourishing and populating our land with staggering escalations in crime activity locking them up doesn't work for every one thousand we convict two thousand more will be recruited underclass minorities poverty written young adults have ambitions ambitions which can only be sated by the open doors of economic and culturally status filled positions such positions are offered in crime principally the open drug marketplace That door of opportunity is accessible and swiftly becoming the accepted norm. We see a revolution embracing crime occurring now. We must therefore employ a counter-revolution. The social-educational revolution is the only solution I can see ahead, and we need to start that now. So I'm just going to share that. That was kind of more... That was good, philosophical stuff. Yeah, I thought it was going to be a story. I apologize, but that it's okay, it's something
0: different. But touching on education, I found it interesting when you would tell me about the women that you would come across in prison that were Ill- illiterate.
1: Yes, I used to teach them. I learned um the lawback method, and it's a method of teaching English to adults and non-speaking English or non-speaking, um, yeah, English, English non-speakers. So people that are from other countries immigrating, the law back method, um, is used for people that just can't read or write all people.
0: Well, fantastic. Okay. Here we are. Um, thank you for sharing that today and everything that you did share today. Um, do you have anything you want to add before we end this segment of Jack's corner? Yes, um, in fact, we didn't touch upon uh,
1: some of the things that I hope we get to in another chat later, another segment. I okay. wanted to talk about Soul on Ice by Eldridge Cleaver.
0: Oh, the book yes. you're reading. Yes. Ex-Black Panther.
1: Yes. Uh, Minister? Yes.
0: Interesting. Yes, because it's, what's interesting
1: is I'm reading Soul on Ice in between reading, uh, Martin Luther King's autobiography and, um martin luther king jr was just incredible and beautiful and uh we can only imagine the struggles he must have gone through to become the man that he became um you know it's one thing i will add is that um there seems to be a tradition among if you have a minister father it's very common that you become a minister too isn't that interesting yeah and then their children become ministers and it's a tradition
0: right it is
1: i remember my mother had told me that one of my relatives um, had a movement a religious movement called the culverites and her last name is culver and i think it might have been in utah i can't remember rick did the um Background searching of the Culverites. Right. But what's interesting is I became a preacher while I was incarcerated. While you were in prison. Yeah. That's right. Anyway, so all that said, um, I hope everyone stays safe. and um, Yes. And is, is surrounded by love and support. Um, we certainly send you love and support from a distance. We hear um, in Jack's Corner
0: right so thank you all for tuning in we do have a patreon account if you want to head over there it's Patreon forward slash museum americana if you'd like to become a patron for museum americana who sponsors this podcast jack's corner okay well
1: it was a pleasure being with you jack's and
0: um same we're here. signing thank off you. we'll Love see you next time to the world all right see you next time bye